once again, Captain Hindsight comes to this House and attacks the government for doing exactly what he urged us to do 18 months ago. Lots of words, lots of bluster, no answers. Uh, uh, word of warning. Word of warning, Prime Minister. That's not going to work with the police. <laughs> Market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name's Conor Matchett. I am the Deputy Political Editor at the newspaper. Uh, here with me this week, as per usual, is our political editor, Alistair Grant, and our Westminster correspondent, Alex Brown. Hannah is uh, away interviewing Nicola Sturgeon as we speak pretty much uh, in Glasgow as part of the local election campaign. Something uh, that hopefully you at home will enjoy later on is we've, we've got a an extended chat with Sir John Curtis, polling guru, um, about the, the local elections and the state of play. We'll get to that shortly, but it's been a busy week in terms of Scottish politics, including, uh, if I do say so myself, my own story about Indy Ref 2 legal advice. To cut a long story short, uh, essentially the government have been, Scottish government have been told to release parts of their legal advice around the legality of uh, a second independence referendum. Alistair, uh, it's relatively big uh, news. Uh, again, if I do say so myself. <laughs> you're, you're right, Connor. Your, your story is massive. It's a yeah, huge, it's huge story. Massive. The well biggest done. story of the week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it, it is a big deal. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's really, really interesting. You know, I think part of the narrative that's built up around this is that kind of Secret Scotland, the SNP being secretive and the Scottish government not being fully transparent. And I think to be fair to them, this issue doesn't, I think it's a point you've actually made yourself, doesn't play into that as much just because it's been a long-standing convention that governments don't release legal advice. And I think you would probably admit this yourself, it's a bit of a surprise actually that this ruling has come out. And it obviously harks back to decisions that were made during the Alex Salmon inquiry and the release of legal advice when Holyrood was looking into that kind of shambolic situation. So I think it's interesting that's happening and it will be fascinating to see what is actually released when the government comes to this deadline of, I think it's June 10th, isn't it, when they have to release this information because we, you know, it's, it's one of the big issues around the second independence referendum, just whether or not Scotland, Holyrood could hold a referendum without Westminster's consent and what the legal views are around that has been such a key debate and any legal advice relating to that will be a huge story. Yeah, it was. It's an interesting. You 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 mentioned that it was a shock. I think uh, uh, I certainly said it on uh, to a few people and on on STV on on Wednesday night that it was a big surprise on the basis that pr legal professional privilege and the public interest in keeping that secret uh, and that that principle is huge. And when I put that FOI in, uh, I genuinely expected a no. So it was quite nice to get a yes. And it, I was talking to to some folk about how. The government believe that this is kind of recalibrated rather than completely changed how we approach legal advice um, and it being published. Um, 
so it's interesting stuff. Uh, Alex, presumably this has completely been missed by, by everyone down south. I mean, obviously the talk of the town uh, is that you're on STV. Hell yeah. This entire segment just seems like an excuse for Connor to regale us with his glamorous lifestyle. A lot of us were saying, as I made the case on the television, which I was <laughs> on. If I as I was saying to those many people congratulating me in the story. As, as I was speaking to the millions and millions of fans, <laughs> uh, direct to camera. Uh, have you cleared us any space in a mantelpiece for the Oh, awards? yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh. Big ones, yeah. <laughs> You can put it in the United Trophy cabinet because nothing else is happening. Uh, yeah, literally no one's talking about it. I don't think anyone cares. Um, obviously, they're like, it's great to see Connor on television, but mainly Westminster has got other stuff to think about other than a referendum that's not going to happen for however long. So I'd, I'd love to tell you that everyone's going, it's incredibly shocking and MPs are they incandescent that this is happening or, or excited. But um, they only want to talk about not being sexually harassed. Pathetic. We'll come. We'll come back to that uh, later. Um, as promised, though, um, it's worth us uh, letting listeners have a have a uh, listen to our chat with uh, Sir John Curtis. Um, Alistair and I spoke to him earlier today about uh, the the local elections and the general state of play in Scotland. And here is what the esteemed polling guru had to say. Well, of course, we've not had a great deal in the way of uh, opinion polls which in a sense is the only real guide, one. And two, uh, we do have to remember that people don't simply vote in local elections in the way that they do uh, in election to Holyrood or Westminster, not least um, independent candidates manage to get around 10% of the vote. Um, and they are still certainly, well, they're, they're not only now significant players in more rural Scotland, but actually in the wake of the introduction of the single transferable vote system, uh, you do now get the odd independent being elected in the central belt uh, as well in a way that wasn't necessarily the case before. But still, with that, with those caveats, um, what we then have to do is to remind yourself of the baseline. This is true of any set of local elections. The first thing is what happened last time. And the last local elections took place in May 2017, after Theresa May had called the 2017 general election, but before that event had happened. Now, of course, Theresa May called that uh, general election in the expectation that she was going to get a large overall majority, because that's what the polls were suggesting were going, was going to happen. And certainly the local elections in 2017 did anticipate what certainly happened north of the border, which is that the Conservatives put in their best performance in the 2017 election, and the Conservatives in the local elections got 25% of the first preference vote. That was more or less a doubling of what they had managed to achieve five years earlier in 2012. So it was always going to be the case, given that uh, the popularity of the Conservative Party has diminished from what it was at the time of the 2017 general election, that the party was going to be fighting a relatively on a, on a relatively sticky wicket. You know, the trouble with doing well in a previous election is you've got to defend it. Um, so I think you know some diminution of the Conservatives' strength in local government was always on the cards. But of course, it is their misfortune that in the meantime, in the wake of the question of Boris Johnson's ethics and probity becoming a central issue in our politics, really ever since the Owen Paterson affair of last November, that for the first time in the GBY polls, uh, the Conservatives have been running consistently behind Labour, and equally in Scotland, and crucially, 
really since the autumn or so, they have been running behind Labour in the Scotland polls as well. And indeed, at the time of the local elections, uh, the Conservatives were running at about 30% uh, in the polls north of the border. Uh, they are now running at 20% at best. So um, it does look highly likely that the Conservatives are going uh, uh, to suffer losses. And that indeed, perhaps of greatest note, is that the, their position as the second largest party in Scotland, which they've held since 2016, is now potentially at risk. And that indeed, whereas south of the border, there's lots of excitement about how the Conservatives make, make lots, lots of losses, most of it um, misplaced, because once you look at the character of the election south of the border when the election, election was last held, the Conservatives are not having to defend a particularly good performance uh, or areas where they're particularly strong. Uh, in Scotland, they are having to defend a relatively good uh, performance. So there is, therefore, as it were, a battle for supremacy of the fragmented unionist vote. And clearly, if the Labour Party were to become the second largest party, you know, the fragmentation, the disputation about who should be leading the unionist movement in Scotland, if there is any referendum campaign in the near future, I mean, those questions will just simply become uh, more difficult. The more difficult question is how well will the SNP do? Um, it's a difficult question because in 2017, they only got a third of the vote which was no more than what they got in 2012, even though, of course, in between those two elections, what had intervened was the 2014 independence referendum in the wake of which the SNP had gone walkies in the 2015 Westminster election and you know, still also did uh, pretty well in the 2016 Holyrood election. Um, and I think most of us, rightly or wrongly, were anticipating that they would at least make some progress on the 2012 figure. And in some places they did, Glasgow, for example, um, but other places they definitely did not. Um, so at the moment, the SNP position of polls for Holyrood is about 46. It was around 42 in 2017. And of course, in the 2017 Westminster election, the SNP did indeed also certainly do disappointingly, at least by the standards of 2015, uh, with only around 36, 37% of the vote. And, uh, you know, they've clearly recovered from that. So the odds are that the SNP, perhaps across Scotland as a whole, will make an advance, though whether that will be true everywhere is, you know, is, is perhaps debatable. And I think there's one obvious potential fly in the ointment. But how far they're going to advance is... I think, uncertain, given independent candidates and, and all the rest of it. The one other source of uncertainty on the nationalist side is how well the Greens are going to do. Um, the Greens have been riding high in the polls. And you know, one recent poll put them at a record high. But actually, they were also riding quite high in the polls back in 2017. Um, so we'll look to see how far they advance. But obviously, the concern the SNP will have is that you know, we certainly know that some of the people who vote for the SNP on the constituency to vote for Holyrood and vote for the Westminster are first preference green voters. And so therefore, how much of the SNP vote is going to go is going to go off in that direction? With what consequence? Um, um, and, you know, maybe the Greens will take more off the, uh, of the, of the nationalist side of the vote than was the case uh, in 2017. Who knows? But then even if that does happen, the then 
raises the question, well, but what impact will that have? Because the threshold to get election in the local elections is much higher than for Hollywood. You, you know, if you're not getting up something close to 15% of the vote, you're probably going to struggle to pick up a seat. Whereas basically the barrier for the list vote in Scotland is about five to six percent of the vote, albeit over a wider area. Um, and the truth is that um, you know, in 2017, the only two places where the Greens could effectively start getting accumulations of councillors was in Glasgow and Edinburgh. And that's the two places where they've got they've, they've got concentration. They're hoping to spread their wings further now. Um, but given the high threshold, perhaps they won't. And then the crucial thing will be what happens to the transfers. Now, one of the things that's very clear that happened in 2017 as compared with 2012 is that the constitutional fault line structured the pattern of lower transfers to a greater extent than was the case in 2012, i.e., Basically, you know, conservative voters would transfer to Labour or Democrat, but not transfer to the SNP. SNP voters might transfer to the Greens, but they wouldn't transfer to Colnab or Lib Dem, or at least to a much uh, lesser extent. And certainly Green voters were transferring to the SNP even in 2017. Now, on the nationalist side, voters have been given a very strong cue from the fact that the Greens are now in coalition with the SNP and at Holyrood to indeed, you know, uh, give their lower transfers. Not, however, you'll necessarily get much recognition of this by the parties. Um, and equally, and you know, what how, how exactly what happens on the unionist side will again also depend on the pattern of transfers. And you know, voters here, shall we say, are not exactly being helped by the parties. I mean, I've received loads of leaflets uh, uh, being told. We are the only party here that can defeat the SNP. And uh, they say, so you have to vote for us. Now, of course, the honest truth is that this is specious nonsense under the STB system. If you wish to defeat the SNP, or indeed you wish to defeat the Conservatives or any other party, what you should do with your ballot paper, doesn't matter who you give your first preference to, just keep on ranking the candidates so that you put the party you really don't like at the bottom. But there is, uh, and the truth is, the unionists, in a sense, I think, are, are at risk of missing a trick, is that, you know, if indeed the nationalist transfers operate more effectively than they did in 2017, and the unionist ones do not, because voters have not been given the cue, then uh, the unionist parties are at risk of losing out in the odd, odd last seat. Now, of course, against that, we know that in last year, in the Hollywood election, Quite a lot of voters voted tactically. They worked it out for themselves. And maybe indeed we will discover that the pattern of transfers uh, on the unionist side is, 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 more, is more robust also. So yeah, that's undoubtedly an uncertainty that we will only get to the bottom of, frankly, days after the results um, are, are released. Um, so probably, to, to summarise, probably the SNP making something advanced, but how much uncertain, uh, and it depends a bit on the Greens, whose chances of making a big breakthrough outside Glasgow and Edinburgh don't necessarily look that good. Um, Labour perhaps to overtake uh, the Conservatives um, uh, and, uh, and that uh, therefore on the unionist side, uh, you know, further uh, political fragmentation. Now, if all of that happens, of course, what immediately the SNP will do is to say, this just goes to prove, A, Scotland has rebuffed Boris, 
and B, that here is further evidence there's an impetus towards Scotland wanting independence. Well, the first will be true, but it won't be new. And the second will not necessarily be a warranted uh, implication um, because, um, I mean, unless you know the SNP and Green first preference vote exceeds 50%, which is unlikely, then the truth is that nobody will be able to claim that their side of the argument uh, got over half the vote, and this therefore demonstrates that voters do or do not want independence. We had we had had an interview with uh, Douglas Ross in the paper today. Um, you know, where he's talking rebuffs a lot of the criticism that he's had about Partygate and his U-turn. And, you know, he was very, very confident um, in the, in that discussion that he the Tories will finish second. You mentioned that that, that seems like the big prize for Labour in this election is, is, is finishing second. And the polling seems to indicate that in a Holyrood sense, at least, they've, they've made some progress. I suppose the question is, is how helpful is that polling for a local election in kind of assessing how strong Labour is against maybe Tory struggles and whether or not Douglas, uh, Ross and Anna Sower are right to be both be optimistic about getting second because insiders suggest it will be within a couple of points. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, it's not an enormous gap. Um, Labour will have one advantage over the Conservatives, which is that Labour find it easier to pick up transfers from Liberal Democrat voters than the Conservatives do. Um, and certainly even in 2017, partly because actually the Conservatives underestimated their prospects and under-nominated in some wards. Uh, but actually the gap in seats between Conservative and Labour was much narrower than the gap in first preference votes. And that's because A, the Conservatives are denominated, but B, also, uh, you know, because, you know, uh, even some unionists are just not willing to transfer to the Conservatives, uh, they uh, tend to lose out in the process of transfers. Um, so, uh, so we might even find that one party is ahead in first preferences and the other party is ahead in terms of seats. That's perfectly possible. Look, look, sure. I mean, I mean, two answers to you. Look, I mean, Broadly speaking, the results of local elections, once you aggregate them up across Scotland as a whole, tend broadly to follow the popularity of the parties uh, for Holyrood or for Westminster, broadly speaking, but not exactly so, as we've already said, partly because of independent guys. And of course, certainly in individual contests, um, People will say, well, I never don't like Nicola Sturgeon, but, you know, my SNP councillor lives just down the road. He sorted out the potholes or the bin collections around here. He's a nice chap. We occasionally have a drink in the pub. I know I'm, I'm going to give him my vote um, or, you know, lo- local independent candidates. So all of that will all that will go on in, in individual councils. You know, there will be arguments about particular issues, etc. But once you start aggregating across Scotland as a whole, then these things are largely going to cancel up. But A, as you know perfectly well, polls are fallible. They're a guide, but they're not going to actually. B, not everybody will vote the same. So sure, none of us can be sure uh, who is going to come second. But you know, it looks on the evidence that we do have to us that the Labour Party seems to have a better chance. I would say to you, however, it will be much more of an indication of the dec- of, of a declining conservative support than necessarily any sign of Labour recovery. Um, and indeed, I think one of the things to look out for uh, uh, on Friday is when Labour advances, who suffers? And I suspect we might find that when, where Labour profit, 
they do so primarily at the expense of the Conservatives and not necessarily at the expense of the SNP. Not least because the other thing we have to realise now is that, you know, politics in Scotland is now almost like politics in Northern Ireland. If you are a unionist, you vote Conservative, Labour or Liberal Democrat. If you are a nationalist, you vote SNP or Green. And that is even more so the case now than was the case back in 2017. Um, so, uh, therefore, given that Labour have tied themselves pretty firmly to the union side of the mass, albeit there are still some Labour voters who support um, uh, independence, um, then the truth is that that's where they are more likely uh, to profit. But equally, you know, you know, Conservative voters who are upset about Boris, I mean, they might have to hold their nose to vote Labour, but, you know, they're not going to go to the polling station to vote for the SNP, most of them. So you can see how this may well play out. But it, it, it and that therefore what be careful if indeed the Labour Party starts to spin to say this goes to show we're making significant progress in Scotland and we'll be able to deliver the seats for Keir Starmer to get over Marjorie Westminster. Look at the numbers, check, look to see where the advance is coming from. Um, uh, be, uh, because it may well be that both the SNP and the Labour Party perform better than they did in 2017, but actually in terms of the relative position of the two, not an awful lot has changed. From what you're saying, it seems that local election, just like the Holyrood election, every single election in Scotland is, is pretty much just constitutional then. That's yeah, people- oh, sure. I mean, that, absolutely. And of course, you know, this is the Labour Party's problem. I mean, the Labour Party wants politics not to be about the constitutional question, right? right? It wants politics to go back to the between left and right, in exactly the same way as south of the border. The Labour Party wants politics to move away from the Brexit divide and to be about left and right. Now, actually, south of the border, the Brexit divide is still there, but it's not as strong as it was. But north of the border, the constitutional divide is as strong as it ever has been. Um, I mean, this is why at the end of the day, so far at least, all the arguments about, you know, the, how well the SNP are not running schools or the health service or um, a shipyard down in Port Glasgow don't seem to matter very much because at the end of the day, voters are not voting on the record of the SNP. They're voting on the promissory note that there's going to be a referendum. And most yes voters in Scotland want a referendum held at some point between now and 2026. And that's just uh, that's just uh, uh, central uh, to our politics. So yes, now you know, as I said, it won't be quite as tight as that in this election. But it's it is just the dominating question in in our politics at the moment. I wanted to ask about ferries. Actually, I mean, it's obviously been a huge story. The ferries fiasco, the kind of Calamac problems. Yeah. But do it has any cut through with the public? I mean, is it any? Does this have any impact on voters? Well, I mean, very difficult to tell in the absence of you know, much way of polling. But, I mean, I'm sure that um, voters on the islands are pretty upset about this, okay? Whether in the central belt voters, I mean, I mean, you know, so, some people on the independent side of the argument will say it's a jolly good thing that the Scottish government has kept the shipbuilding industry alive uh, uh, in Port Glasgow. It's part of our history and um, uh, you know, a, 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 a jolly good thing too. And the truth is that you know, all shipbuilding in Scotland now essentially relies on government contracts by one means or another. So they're all effectively uh, de facto part of the public sector because the UK government, you know, it's getting its defence contracts that, that, that matter. Um, so you know. Um, so, you know, for those people in Central Belt who are not reliant on the ferries, you know, how much this kind of 
get through. You know, it's you know, there's a, there, there, you know, there, there clearly, you know, it clearly hasn't gone well. Um, but you know, as compared with something like party game, which everybody understands, um, or the management of COVID, which again everybody understands, or even Brexit, about which most people have views one way or the other. It's not, despite the best efforts of journalists like yourselves, I am not sure that outside the islands, it's as yet the kind of thing that people say, well, you know, because of this, I'm not going to vote for the SNP, because at the end, the independence question is the more important one. I mean, I saw that, um, well, I won't mention any names, a journalist on another highly reputable Scottish newspaper was writing yesterday about how, you know, the reason why this matters is that because people's views of independence will be tied up with people's confidence in the SNP. Actually, I'm not sure that's right. Okay. But, you know, you, I mean, you know, one fundamental mistake that people on both sides of the argument make is that if Scotland were to become an independent country, there is no guarantee that the SNP would inherit the earth. We have none of us any idea what the who will be running an independent Scotland, what their programme will be, etc. The SNP can tell us what they would like it to be. But, you know, the truth is, if Scotland were to become an independent country, the SNP may not survive the experience. I mean, one of, the, one of my lines during the 2014 independence referendum was, if I were Peter Murrell, I'd want to lose at the referendum. And if I were Ruth Davidson, um, I would want to lose the referendum because probably if Scotland became an independent country, the chances of reviving the centre-right in Scotland would improve. And in the case of the SNP, you'd be saying, well, what's the point of the party anymore, right? So it's just to make the point that making, attempting to, to as it were, to tar the independence brush with the incompetence of the SNP is not necessarily certainly a logical argument, and B, I'm not sure that in the end it, it's the one that works. Sure, what does matter is the quality of the argument about the economic consequences of independence, uh, Brexit, et cetera. And you know, that's a debate we've still got to have north of the border. We've not really had a post-Brexit, post-COVID debate about what independence would mean. And neither side really has address the fact that the argument for and against independence is a very, very different one from the one it was in 2014. I think, in my view, it's a much bigger, much starker, much more geostrategic choice than it was in 2014. But, you know, and to that extent, at least, it's much bigger than the fate of a um, shipyard in Port Glasgow that has a certain historic resonance. You'll be delighted to know, John, that we're, we're polling on that um, at the minute, it's in it's in field at the moment, so you'll <laughs> we'll get some some idea of the cut through. Sure, that's good. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, I I, 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 I mean, my guess is you may well find a lot of people say it's not been handled terribly well, and I'm still waiting for the SNP. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want I wanted to touch on um, Glasgow in particular yeah. as 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 a city. You mentioned earlier, you know, the SNP had a had a very good year election in 2017 there, and Scottish Labour viewed the city as their almost their right, if you like, their entitlement. Yeah. Um, is there any sign that that SNP hegemony that's been in place in Glasgow, both at you know Westminster and at Holyrood for the last few years, is is likely to to lose out to Labour in a council on a local on a local uh, election with Anas, who's who's got such a strong 
you know, base of support in the city. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, the first thing we have to remind ourselves: we don't have an SNP hegemony in, in Glasgow. They run a minority administration with the support of the Greens. Yeah, they got uh, thirty-nine percent of the vote in twenty seventeen. Um, okay, there are two obvious things to say. The first is that the change of the electoral system. This was one of the places where it really made a difference. Um, you know, what used to happen is that, you know, if you take the last election in 2003, the Labour Party got just under half of the vote and got all but eight or nine of the seats, right? Um, so actually, there wasn't really a hegemony in electoral terms even then. It's the way in which the electoral system operated. Um, Labour did well in both 2007 and 2012 to narrowly hang on to overall control. Again, they got less than half the vote, but the way the PR STV system works, uh, that was enough to give them a, a narrow majority. I think it was a majority of one back in 2012. So um, it was always potentially likely to end up moving to being a, a hung council, and that's what happened in, in 2017. So um, I, I mean, I think the headline answer to you, and we'll then get into the detail, is that I think it's difficult to believe that Labour will do well enough to get an overall majority in the city. They might do, they might well do better than they did last time. Again, not least because I think the Conservative vote, the Conservatives got about 15% in the, in the city last time, as compared with about five or six before. If that vote goes down, Labour is likely to, is, 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 is likely to profit. Um, and Labour may well narrow the gap on uh, the, the SNP. But um, it's difficult to see Labour doing well enough to get an overall majority. And if they don't get an overall majority, um, uh, it, given that probably there may be very little in the way of Conservative representation, there may be no Liberal Democrats again, SNP and Greens will probably still have the majority between them. Even, I, so I think that, that, that's the broad headline. Now, Within that, yes, I think Labour will probably make an advance, but because the Conservative vote is going to go down, whether they can... So, no, let's backtrack slightly. The reason, of course, the second reason, of course, why the city is more difficult for, the, for, for, for Labour is the 2014 independence referendum, in the wake of which virtually everybody who voted yes, which is something like one in three of Labour voters, switched to the SNP and for the most part, have remained there um, uh, ever since. Um, and of course, Glasgow as a city did vote yes in 2014, let alone where it might be now. It's probably even more of a yes city than it was then. So that does make, uh, and, you know, across Scotland as a whole, you know, Labour are not making any great, I mean, if, if Labour get about the 24%, of you know, the equivalent of the 24% of the vote that they're currently getting in the polls, that would only be a point or two up on last year. This is not some dramatic Labour recovery. We're talking about Labour coming second because of the decline in Conservative support, not because of some great Anasawa revival. That we have to bear in mind. Right? It's Tories slip to third place, the headline. It's not Labour surge to second place, right? Um, so with coming, so given, given this is a yes voting city, now, this was a place above all where you know Labour have lost out and which they are therefore uh, struggling to regain you know uh, that vote. So um, the uncertainty, is, which is particularly true in this city, is how well do the Greens do, and to what extent do they take that stuff off the SNP? Albeit in the end, it may not make any difference to who runs the administration. 
um, and do indeed the S&P uh, you know, manage to advance at all. I, I doubt they're going to advance much. So narrowing of the gap, yes. Um, I guess Labour's best hope might just be to overtake the S&P in first preference votes. But if, if that were to happen, they're relying on the Greens to help them out. Um, but then the way the transfers will, will work um, and the way the, politi the politics of the city will work, um, I would have thought the SNP will still be running the min minority administration afterwards. To what extent do you think, uh, do you think Alex Salmon's Alibaba party will be able to get any councillors? Well, I guess there are one or two of them that are sitting councillors. And, you know, and uh, maybe one or two of them have sufficient personal popularity that they manage to get over the line. But... Um, the polls so far give Alba an average of about 2% for these elections. It's, you know, <laughs> you've got to be running at about 20% before you become serious competitors in these in, 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 in these elections, or you've certainly got to be, you know, running at uh, 7, 8, 9% with some local fiefdoms, which is, you know, what happens to local to Liberal Democrats. Um, no, I mean, uh, I mean, and obviously, you know, they will take uh, some first preference votes, Again, the interesting thing is what happens to the transfers, right? So if people vote Alba and then they vote SMP, frankly, doesn't matter. All right. Well, thank, thanks, John. And uh, yeah, looking forward to Friday. <laughs> <laughs> right, John. Okay, bye. So thanks to John for, for joining us um, today on the Steamy. Um, really interesting points there about uh, the local elections coming up. Some interesting thoughts on independence as well. Alex, uh, it's been a busy week in Westminster as well, just to move away a bit from, from what's happening next Thursday. Part of the, the title of this recording as we speak is Pestminster. Um, it, this seems to have been a bit of a floodgates being opened around sexual harassment in, in, in Westminster at the minute. Yeah, I mean, we, this comes around every few months. We know that Westminster is a disgusting, horrible play, uh, place filled with disgusting, horrible people. Um, and it's just, uh, it's all rising to the surface and being exposed again. We found out that a member of parliament has been accused of watching pornography in the commons and possibly in a committee room with two people seeing it happen, uh, two, two Tory uh, women seeing it, um, which is, I mean, obviously the basic point is it's disgusting to be watching porn at work uh, in a place for other people. But also, like, what, like, I might occasionally like watch an Instagram reel or like a little, you know, a little Twitter video in the office. But like, what you what are you watching porn for in the Commons? Like, what are you getting out of that? I don't I, I don't understand what's the whole. It's so illogical and mad. Let alone you know, disgusting. And then we've had the whole uh, cabinet minister um, uh, said that MPs, some MPs are animals. Uh, we have had um, Amory Trevelyan say that some MPs have been handsy with her, and all these horrible things are coming to the surface. I mean, the thing is. There's loads of stuff that we don't get to talk about. I mean, I, I, you know, I've written before about my own experiences of sex harassment in Westminster, and I feel like that's just like the tip of the iceberg. I was talking to um, people in Parliament yesterday who I know have got you know worse stories than me, who've been sent unsolicited photographs of penises, who have had people just in the bar just put their hands up their skirts, and these people continue to work there. It is uh, a horrible place, and the and the one of the worst things about it is it's not just that we know that this uh, these sexism, sexist, uh, and these assaults are happening. Are happening. It's that the way it works is the Conservative Party can refer it to the independent body, which means the Tory MP party then don't have to suspend the MP accused. So then they can wait, and we can wait for this committee, who already have a huge backlog to be dealing with, 
to process it. So it could take months, it could take years to actually have any verdict. They kick the can down the road and basically get to keep a Tory MP with the whip. And the only way that that will have that position will have to change is if the people who saw it speak out, or if uh, you know journalists get hold of the name and then publish it and confront them about it. So as it stands, it's we know a horrible thing has happened, and there won't be any immediate uh, you know penalty for that. It's grim. <laughs> what it is grim. I mean, what why? It's interesting. Why is Westminster seemingly worse than you know other other places, or is, is it just a reflection of society? I think it's a combination of both things. I think it is a slightly reflection of society. I mean, we know that. Um, I mean, every basically everyone we know will have been sexually harassed or assaulted. That is a horrible, uh, grim, and depressing reality of life and the um, just <laughs> the awful existence <laughs> that it is to be a woman. Um, whereas in Parliament, the hours are very long. And so a lot of the people have been trying to make the defence like, oh, you know, it's long hours, it's extreme culture, they're drinking a lot. And there are lots of bars. And I'm someone who goes to Parliament, I might drink in Parliament once a week, probably less, because for me, it's my job, which I enjoy, I'm very happy, uh, the Scotsman, uh, if you know, anyone's listening, but I don't, I don't, then don't go, oh, you know what, I'm going to stay in Parliament and have a few more drinks. But it's what MPs do, because they live quite nearby. So MPs and staffers, they stay in Parliament, they get there early to work, they're there all day, and then they drink there until quite late in the evening. Lots of it's heavily subsidised, and, you know, after a drink, people's worst traits come out. And it's interesting that the defence of alcohol has been used by some MPs to defend some of their colleagues or say, you know, why it's happening. When in, in court... Um, Alcohol is an aggravating factor. Alcohol doesn't, if you you know do do a crime and you're very drunk, it's not mitigation to go, oh, I was drunk, it doesn't count. It's, you know, it means it's worse that you were drunk. You lost control and you did something awful. Um, so I do, I think it's a combination of the hours. I think it's a combination of people being away from home. They're so far away that it almost feels like it's, you know, it's a separate entity. They're not, it's, it's not real. They just, they exist in this bubble and the and repercussions are so rare um, you know, I mean, Imran Khan was convicted of um, sexual assault and has continued to take a pay, a pay for three weeks. He's still a me- he still counts as a, member of, a me- as a member of parliament. He's handed his resignation now, but the process has started. It doesn't happen. David Orbison was accused of sexual uh, assault by multiple uh, women. The Tory whips knew about it, but it only came out that it was him and he was only suspended once it came out in the press. It was only once a story was done that he was suspended. They were happy to keep him on the books knowing those accusations are there, which may not be true, but they are accusations nonetheless that are being investigated. And they're happy to keep him as a sitting Tory MP, going to all of his events and everything, until it became public. Uh, it is the, you know, it's not just that they're in this intense situation. That's not an excuse, because lots of people have, you know, big offices. It is that the system itself is not designed, or, or certainly does not strive to protect women. It strives to protect the parties from any fallout. Uh, it is an incredibly ug- ugly and broken. Um, and I, and I mean, I, 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 you know, I was tweeting about this over the weekend. I mean, it's not on STV. It's just on <laughs> at Alex Brown, which you can all follow. But working in Westminster, I've been in the lobby for three years and I, and I'm all, you know, there are, I have to tell people, oh, you shouldn't, don't be, you don't feel comfortable with them. They're a bad person. Um, a newer member of the lobby said to me, because we were talking about people and, and they were telling me about someone. I said, oh, they're this or this. And she goes, and they said, oh, you know, it's a real, um, I feel like whenever I talk to you, I feel I feel more depressed about working here because it's so horrible. And I was like, how long have you been here? And they're like, about, you know, however many months, like that'll do it. Um, because once you actually see what it's like, you realise, well, that person is who seems so impressive, actually, 
you know, there's not enough to write the story on it. There's not enough to prove it. And I, it's not for me to tell the story of someone I know. I can't, I can't hear something awful from a woman and go, you know what? I'm going to tell that because it's not mine to tell. They are the one who has to report it. Otherwise it's just, he said, she said, and then the man gets away with it. And it is, you know, it's been like that forever. It's like that in the justice system with um, rape convictions. Uh, and, and Westminster shows no interest in dealing with it. Um, you know, Caroline, and I know this, I know this is veering as ever into a monologue, but like when Caroline Noakes accused um, Stanley Johnson of grabbing her leg, uh, Tory MPs blanked her in the tea room where, uh, you know, we had uh, presenters and, you know, big names going, oh, tweeting pictures of him. Like, he's always been a good man to me, like anecdotally, like, well, you know, he was good at painting, so he liked animals. It just, it's incredibly depressing and it's always anecdotal uh, defences. There is just not a system in place to deal with anything. I just know so many awful people who we can't do anything about. And no one, and people are, and you know, you learn, but when you see responses to that stuff like Caroline Noakes, who's going to speak out and go, this happened to me? Who's going to feel bold and brave enough when they purposefully don't do the right thing? Even so, like uh, Liam Byrne got done over the, um, that got done this week for bullying, which is completely sex, uh, separate sex harassment. He bullied and harassed and bothered one of his uh, employees for months. He's got a two-day suspension. The trauma that goes from being bullied in your workplace, and then the guy just doesn't get to go to work for two days. Like, oh, well, that that'll, that'll teach him. I feel like it's a safe environment. It's um, it's really depressing. Sorry, I know this is very light, and I'm just I'm just um you know, constantly talking, but it is so draining having to go into Parliament every day and hear these stories. And I spend so much of my time, not just writing stories, but like talking to people saying, you should report that. I can't push you to report it, but you should report it. Here's who you can go to. Here's what you can do. But it's very hard to do that again when you don't, I don't believe in the structures that are going to deal with it anyway. And they don't feel safe because they've seen other people try and do it and nothing ever happens. There used to be, um, there used to be a journalist called Owen Bennett. He used to work at Telegraph who did some really just some really awful things, some of my friends, uh, allegedly. Um, and it and other, other, they had tried to raise it with other senior journalists about his behaviour. And they never, they didn't do anything because they didn't want to have spoken to him and like they knew, right? Because it would look bad. So he eventually was forced out uh, because some people raised it, like historic stuff that had happened with him. But stuff was ongoing, but no one felt brave enough to report it. And he, so he was, you know, in the lobby for, for, for way longer than he should be when people knew what he was like. Um, and that is Westminster. That's not people protecting their own. That's people, you know, not wanting to put their head above the parapet because they don't feel safe or they're worried that, you know, or reflect poorly on them if it doesn't go well. It is a deeply depressing place to work. Alistair, just kind of compare and contrast with Holyrood. Um, we, we don't tend to have the same level of scandal coming out of Holyrood. I mean, you know, why, why, why do you think that is? I think there is less of a, well, from what I've heard, there's less of a drinking culture in Holyrood, perhaps. Um, I think the kind of long hours of Westminster maybe aren't as present in Holyrood. I mean, when Holyrood was set up, I think it was deliberately designed to be a bit more family friendly. That doesn't always happen in terms of its working hours. Sometimes they're not particularly family friendly, but they certainly are more so than Westminster. They don't have the same kind of culture of late night votes and all that kind of thing. And I think that the combination of the long hours and the being away from uh, being away from your family and the drinking culture has probably exacerbated some of these problems. But then, as Alex says, it's a society-wide problem, and uh, Westminster does seem to be particularly bad for it. And I, I'm not sure what the reasons are for that, but it is a problem that exists everywhere. 
Absolutely. Well, well, thank you uh, both for coming. I'm sure we'll hear more about the the sexual harassment issues in in Westminster going forward. And obviously next week, we'll be potentially doing a podcast, not not fully knowing what the results of the local elections are, which could also set some other things in motion around Boris Johnson's future and that sort of thing. Uh, Thank you very much, Alistair and Alex, for joining. And thank you very much at home for listening. Bye-bye. The steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman.